Welcome to the Footprint Plus 2023 podcast series. Countdown to zero in association with Hydrock. Okay, good morning everybody. Good morning, thank you for joining us uh, for Hydrock's uh, breakfast event, uh, Countdown to Zero. Uh, my name is Graham Monday. Uh, I'm the marketing director for Hydrock. Uh, thank you for being here as opposed to out there, which is obviously a very nice day again. You could have gone for a run, dip in the sea, whatever, but thank you for joining us at half eight for this session. Um, this is Countdown to Zero. We're going to look at the main obstacles uh, to achieving decarbonisation, and then we're going to look at how we tackle them. Um, so we've been running uh, a couple of surveys and polls. So a number of you in this room, uh, mm. if you registered uh, certainly before the last 24 hours, you will have had an email from me, uh, and a number of you have responded with our survey uh, on that in terms of what you think uh, are the main obstacles. We also ran uh, a slightly shortened poll on LinkedIn as well. Uh, LinkedIn's dynamics mean you can't list the kind of things I listed in the survey that I sent you, uh, but that gave us a, a, a feel as well, uh, and I have amalgamated those scores together um, to give you um, the countdown. So we're going to start, and just to position how we're going to run this, we're going to start with the, the fun bit, if you like, uh, which is the countdown. Um, I'm then going to introduce the panel to you. Uh, what I'm aiming for here is that we'll have around about 50 minutes uh, of debate. Um, we're going to talk about some of the key things that emerged from that survey. Um, I would like to take questions and observations from the floor. Um, and as we go, uh, I've decided to go low-tech. I'm a bit of a low-tech person, frankly, so there's no Slido for this. But as we go, I might stop occasionally and say, who's got a perspective on that? So please, you know, shout out, give us a view, uh, questions, whatever, and the panel can take those as well. So my focus is on trying to get through about 50 minutes uh, and pull us in around 9.45, 9.50. I'm conscious that there are other events that start at 10 o'clock, and some of you will be booked on those, um, so you might just want 10 minutes as well before those start. So that's my goal for this session, okay? So... This is the big reveal moment, the big exciting moment, the top 10, uh, the 10 biggest obstacles uh, to decarbonisation. Andy, if you like to cue the music, um, this is the big moment. You might need to turn that up a fraction, Andy, as well, because even I can't hear it. So, number 10. Uh, at the bottom of number 10 were complexities around accessing green funds. At number nine, it was a rapid evolution of technology is delaying decision-making. Uh, number eight uh, was no single ownership uh, in an organization. At number seven, and this was rising slowly as the survey went on, lack of grid capacity, it is a big issue. Number six in the top 10, a lack of intelligent data. We're into the top five, everybody here. At number five, commitment from supply chains. Number four, uh, pressure on new technologies and solutions uh, to prove their return on investment. Top three time, everybody. And number three, an inability to convert strategy to action. Now that leaves us with two, and in that two uh, is an issue about regulation and legislation and the cost of retrofit. Now this is a bit like a blur oasis face-off going on here. Which was number one, which was number two? Well, number two, and this rose as the survey went on, because this was not in the top two originally, was the cost of retrofit. 
Uh, and that left by a country mile, not a country house from Blur, but by a country mile, uh, number one, uh, which was regulation and legislation are unfit for decision making. So that was the top 10, Andy. Thank you for the Top of the Pops music. Um, so yeah, they were the top 10 um, as uh, voted um, by yourselves in our survey and also reflecting what we got from LinkedIn as well. And we will look to examine those now. So um, just briefly, uh, in terms of Hydrock, if, uh, thank you for coming today. If you don't know us, just a brief moment on who we are. Um, Hydrock is a 900-strong UK-based uh, consultancy business. We're focusing, obviously, on the built environment, which is what this conference is about. Uh, we, are, uh, we deliver engineering design, energy, and sustainability consultancy. Um, we're on stand uh, A6A over there. If you're in the front rows, you can see us. We're just over there. Um, so you can come and say hello to us later on. Um, if you'd like to kind of bookmark who we are, I'll give you four, very briefly, four major, current, recent projects to give you a sense of what Hydrock is all about. Um, we have just completed the first phase of a climate risk study for the University of Nottingham. Um, so this is helping them to understand their short, medium, and long-term, long-term being all the way out to 2080, their short, medium, and long-term risks for their, one of their major campuses, 49 assets on this campus, in terms of their major risks around climate change. Um, we're now commissioned to do two more of their campuses as well. And why it's significant, it's the first ever use uh, of the UK Green Building Council's physical risks framework methodology, physical risk framework methodology. So we're now expanding that onto two more campuses. And this is important to them uh, because uh, they want to make sure that their campus uh, is, is good for their students through the future, their health and well-being. Um, they want to make sure their assets are secure um, for their business, their business operations, research and development. Um, it's also critical um, to uh, their insurers as well. Uh, and I mean, it's part of, if you like now, a risk audit for them with their insurers. Um, three other things, I mentioned four. Three other things, um, we designed an energy positive uh, research and development facility in South Wales. Um, uh, this is a facility, Bay Technology Centre, that produces more energy than it consumes. Uh, significantly funded uh, by the local authority, which for them was a key part of their overall heat, or sorry, a key part of their overall decarbonisation programme. Um, we're also supporting organisations um, through to decarbonise their entire estates and looking at their scope one, two, three emissions. Uh, and these range from uh, Millfield School through to FTSE-listed Speedy Hire, um, who have all their challenges uh, of equipment on site. And I know in the audience today, there are one or two uh, Tier 1 contractors. You undoubtedly hire stuff from Speedy Hire. And their challenge is how they liaise with their suppliers and how they work with their customers, for example, yourselves as Tier 1 contractors and how they reduce their footprint. Um, and finally, to book Marcus, um, we are verifying and validating a huge stretch of HS2 um, to pass 2080 standards um, to meet key carbon targets. So that hopefully gives you a bit of a flavour of who Hydrock is in terms of this discussion. So let me introduce our panel, um, and uh, I, I'll go from the, the, the far left as I'm seeing it. Um, so Josh Bullard, 
Um, he leads Hydrox, a 100-strong energy and sustainability uh, business. Uh, next to Josh is Mario Lara Lederman. Um, he is a technical leader for Lendlease. Uh, in the middle, we've got Kelly Cruz, um, who is head of decarbonisation for Wilmot Dixon. Uh, then we've got Sadaf Askari, who leads our carbon advisory work at, at Hydrock. And next to me here, we've got Sonia Parol, who's a design director with Inspired Villages, who are a developer uh, and operator of retirement living uh, facilities. So um, that is our panel. Um, if you see me doing this every now and then, uh, that's me checking my phone. I'm not bored, I'm just checking the time. Okay, everybody? Um, so let us start with um, the big one, the one that came in at number one on the countdown, which was about regulation uh, and, uh, regulation and um, legislation being unfit for purpose, okay? Uh, I don't think this is quite the elephant in the room. I think this is possibly uh, a roaring tiger in the room, uh, particularly in terms of um, the feedback on the survey and, and how it outscored all of the other uh, 10 or the other nine in the countdown. Um, and before I go um, to the panel, let me, just, let me just read and paraphrase three particular comments that were on the survey. So probably some of you in this room um, wrote these comments. So three comments. Um, UK regulations and legislation does not promote actions and in fact it can de-incentivise progress towards decarbonisation across many industries. Um, lack of legislation leads to a lack of a client brief or drive and a lack of commitment. I must admit I wasn't sure, and I'm not being funny when I say this, whether that was a slight typo. I wasn't sure whether that was meant to be client belief and drive, um, but frankly whether it's brief or belief, I think it's the same thing. Um, and the third comment was um, the legislation doesn't currently require a high enough performance. Um, it can basically it can be satisfied through box ticking was the comment. Um, so some interesting points on that. So I'm conscious this was the big issue. Um, so we're going to spend a little bit of time on that at the start of this debate. Um, and um, Josh, I, I look to you basically almost as the head judge here, okay, with the, the, the overview of all of this to kind of start this conversation off. You know, in terms of regulation, legislation is unfit for purpose, there's lack of incentives, that was a key thing that came out from the LinkedIn poll. Um, what is needed to incentivize, you know, carrot stick, all that kind of stuff, what is needed? And, and what is needed to change the dial? Yeah, I think the, the, the first thing to say from an incentive perspective, I think the incentive has always been there in the case that we want to do the right thing. And alongside that, of course, build the commercial case around avoided future cost um, and risk, importantly. Then from a policy and legislation perspective, uh, I think what's quite interesting is a lot of the guidelines and indeed much of the local authorities in terms of planning uh, guidelines are arguably ahead of the curve um, when we compare that to national policy and, and regulations. So there's a bit of a, a catch-up required there. And just to give a, a, a few examples, we heard from the Net Zero Building Standard yesterday. Um, that's going to help us align the, you know, the myriad of guidelines and frameworks that exist and, and you know, hopefully improve that uncertainty around some of those. From a building regulations perspective, we, we need to shift the dial. We've, of course, got the future home standard, future building standard coming forward, but there's still some key gaps there in terms of the need to shift away from 
just looking at the carbon metrics and moving towards energy use intensity, looking at performance and use. We don't currently measure performance and use to an adequate level. That has to be the, the mechanism to ultimately deliver change, um, provide you know, confidence to the market that these systems are providing the benefits that they claim. So there's a number of aspects there. I think the UKGBC's recommendations around, uh, again, in, including uh, embodied carbon in terms of the metrics as well, that's another clear gap that we need to address. So I think there's, there's a number of changes there required at a policy level. And, and you know, another aspect, arguably, is, is where we have probably different perspectives in terms of the various government departments. We think about planning versus heritage uh, versus net zero buildings. There's, there's quite a dichotomy there in terms of outcomes and what we're looking at. So in order to best mitigate this, we need to aggregate all of those demands um, to, to get the best outcome. Um, I, I mean, a, a question for me just to you as well, and I asked this as a bit of a layperson. I said at the beginning I was the head of marketing. I'm not an engineer. I'm not an energy or sustainability specialist. Is, is there all, despite people saying this, uh, regulation legislation is unfit for purpose. Is there almost like too much in a way in terms of there isn't enough, but at the same time there are so many different bodies and codes and everything else. None of them are quite embedded as, you know, this is it. You've got to do that. But it, actually I'm kind of like, I don't know where I'm meant to turn with all this. Uh, uh, yes, I think it's exactly that. There is, I suppose there is a clear direction from a compliance perspective, but again, that is behind what we need to be doing if we're going to be you know, serious about getting to net zero. So. Yes, I think we need certainty, clarity on those regulations and a simplification of that, ultimately. Okay, okay. Um, Sonia, I'm, I, I've got you. Hello, I'm here. <laughs> um, when we spoke in terms of, uh, of one of the briefing calls that we did, um, we talked about the, the demands of your two prime investors. So this remembers Inspired Villages, um, Legal and General and NatWest. So again, as a layperson, I'd be kind of like, well, th th they clearly get it. Uh, in terms of what's required. What's your perspective on uh, th their demands and what they're seeking, and then maybe as, as, the, as the developer, some of the challenges you then have? Um, so we received um, half a billion pounds two years ago from NatWest and Ligo in general as they formed a joint venture to deliver 34 villages between, um, before 2030. So we are very lucky because delivering net zero carbon is not cheap, it's very expensive, but actually we have the commitment from our funders. It's an amazing situation to be in, not everyone is. And we also, um, not, um, Ligo in general has their own journey to deliver net zero carbon across the whole portfolio that we have to meet. However, we have the funding, but we don't have the regulations, we don't have the supply chain. So we are commit committing to deliver something that we are actually finding out how to deliver it. We are, um, some people are waiting for a single silver bullet point um, to, and, and they think that there will be one solution. Um, we are actually trying out solutions. We are working with Wilmot Dixon um, on our first um, net zero carbon regulated energy village, which will be open in September. And um, we already learned um, a massive lesson. Um, within the last two years when we were on site, the technology has changed so much. The efficiency of some of the um, um, supply chain and the products has changed. So we are already outdated with some of the products that has been specified and are delivered. Um, there was no regulations in terms of actually knowing where um, 
where the carbon footprint comes from with regards to embodied carbon. That's why we focus on, on operational um, net zero carbon and, and especially the regulated part because it's just something that we can actually, we, we can present um, the performance and how we deliver it and measure it like Josh said. Um, so we can actually then uh, um, present how we are performing when the building is operational. Are there some challenges about how we incentivize the supply chain more as well? Well, there is a mass massive challenge at the moment. I think the, for me to simplify it, um, I'm an architect, so I always look at, at the, the brick and mortar. So when, for example, you build um, a building and, and you have a brick, you know exactly where carbon footprint comes from. It's very, very simple product. But um, as soon as we start, um, using technology like we are using um, Kenza units um, which are the heat exchange units that actually go in general committed to purchase a company to have some kind of, of control over that product which is fantastic initiative and it is produced in the UK however we don't know where all the parts come from and you still don't, you, you can't trace the carbon footprint on, on those little parts of, of more complete, complicated products. So it's still, and also there are different standards, not only in the UK, there is no single place where you can find all the standards. But then when you think about bringing something from across, from abroad, then you have no chance to actually um, have some control over what you are, what you are purchasing and using. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm going to come to Mario next, but I'm just going to tee you up out there in the audience as well to say I'm going to, I'm going to turn this over to yourselves in a second in terms of observations on this. Uh, so I'm just giving you a little heads up there. Um, Mario, we talked uh, about innovation. Uh, innovation drives change. But again, how do we incentivize mm. that? Yes, look, I mean, for context and perhaps... For those that haven't heard of, of Lendlease, we are a quite special sort of group within the real estate market because we are investors, developers, contractors, and also asset owners, right? So we, we have a, a wide spectrum of what means to be part of the real estate um, industry. We are headquartered in Australia, uh, but we have um, projects in 17 different cities around the world in four different continents. Uh, the special thing about Lendlease, apart from this fully integrated model and the international uh, reach, is that since our inception back in the 70s, sustainability has been at the core of everything we do, which has forced us to try and, and push innovation for, for decades now, um, which you know, we've learned in the process that innovation is really necessary to drive the change that now is being pushed through, you know, the carbon reduction agenda, but also to deal with other uh, challenges we face as a society, shortage in labor, um, safety, you know, housing and so forth. So innovation is something that we see as a means to deal with a number of different challenges, decarbonization being one of them because the, the scale of change is quite significant now. We need to accelerate that process, accelerate that innovation um, agenda even further, right? or even make it a little bit quicker. Um, so what we learn in the process of innovating, uh, because we have done a number of different uh, 
innovative projects around the world where we've been building and bringing some new technologies to our projects is that to really scale and, and, and transform innovation from something niche to something that is the new norm, um, you need the whole industry to align behind certain aspects and, and, and regulation is one of the elements that will help us aligning and, and trying to, to drive the industry in, in a direction that we all need, right? But regulation is only part of the whole story, part of the model. We need obviously stakeholders across the whole value chain to uh, come on the journey. Regulations will help, right? We'll provide some incentives or, you know, some requirements in the future to designers, to uh, engineers to follow certain, um, you know, regulatory requirements, but there is an element of incentivizing as well the market from a messaging perspective, right? So regulations for me takes a couple of uh, tick a couple of boxes around, you know, prescribing some regulations of some requirements, but also sending the right message to the market. So then investors, insurers, um, you know owners, agents, designers, everyone in the value chain to align on the same direction, which in this case is on the topic of decarbonisation. Okay, thank you. Um, Kelly and Sadaf, I'm going to come to you in a second on this same question, actually, if you, if you both want a, a moment on this too and your views. Um, just out to the floor in front of me, all the comfy seats over there to my left. Um, any questions or observations on this? Now, I don't think we have a roving mic, by the way, so you might have to shout, okay? Uh, be bold and shout at me. Any questions or thoughts from anybody? Hang on, there is a microphone coming. Thank you, Andy. <laughs> uh, hello? Yeah, John Spencer and Vision. I think there's a big opportunity that we're to be grasped, which is energy. Now, as energy is rising, the costs and everything, uh, the operational carbon, is to get the energy companies to actually invest in the project and run the energy uh, facilities. And that way, you're actually going to reduce the cost of the project but also ticking the box for operational carbon. Yeah. I don't know. That huge opportunity, I think. So it's a really good observation. And, and uh, <laughs> Salaf and, and, and Kelly, I'm feeling slightly bad here because I'm actually going to briefly turn back to Josh and Sonia because I think there is an interesting observation around inspired villages. Um, and I don't know whether one of you two wants to lead on that in terms of um, energy and what, you know, actually putting it in on the sites and actually suddenly becoming your own energy producer. Yeah, do you, do you want me to jump you, in there? You yeah, can I, start and then we can go along. I yeah. absolutely agree. I think that, that model, whether it's a sort of design, build, fund, operate model from, from energy companies under some form of concession arrangement, that, that absolutely is, is the right course of action in terms of you know, potential opportunities going forward. And I think it, it leads us to that sort of new form of, of finance really around, you know, how do we benefit from those savings uh, longer term by uh, allowing that to be a, a mechanism to support upfront investment. So, yeah, high energy prices are here to stay, absolutely. And I think the, you know, the interesting opportunity there is around, you know, how can we bring additional benefits, whether it's additional revenue opportunities, uh, increased capacity, resilience on the grid, alongside the, the decarbonisation challenge. So. Uh, yeah, the piece of work that we're doing certainly um, with Inspired at the moment is around, well, how do we look at 
an on-site microgrid, uh, potentially using a, an owner-operator model. That would be, well, firstly, solving the capacity issue. We've got you know, this challenge in particular around how do we actually provide power to the site. Um, the grid is, is antiquated at the moment. We've got this electrification challenge, significant uplift required. And is there a model there where we can be thinking about long-term residents, certainly for, for the later living uh, piece there, and actually, you know, they're not going to be getting the electricity or, or energy for free. We're still going to have to pay for that, but we can provide a lower cost. So it's still incentivized. We can still provide that at 10% less than market value. And then when we think about all the other positive externalities that, that come through that from you know, social value implications, the better health outcomes, air quality indicators, there, there's so much to be gained from going down that model, looking at distributed energy systems. Sonia, do you want to add to that? Um, I can add to that. So, um, Josh and, and, and your team is doing excellent work and um, although we are focusing on actually the, the build form and technology, the social value is massive. Um, we noticed that um, our residents who moved to villages are over 70, 75. Um, potentially five years ago there wasn't much interest in sustainability and net zero carbon that would drive people to move to retirement villages, but that has changed recently. Um, whether it is because of how directly they are influenced by the cost of electricity and, and heating, but also um, I think people are more aware. So um, there is a very direct um, benefit from all the investment and the extra money we are putting in through sales velocity. So we see that actually people are moving to retirement villages because um, they, they can't heat their homes. It's very expensive to run and the, the, the homes they are in, and we are providing an environment where there is a certainty uh, ab about that and um, technology to support them. And like you said, um, the, the mini-grid that, um, that we are putting in um, is part of that um, that we deliver. The other thing is that actually, um, I think we are, very, we are very serious about net zero carbon because we are not developers, we actually are operators. So with regards to um, legal and general and NatWest, they are long-term investors. So um, they actually will take um, benefits of, of all that investment in the long term. They won't have strained assets in, in 10 years' time or when the regulations change and people's expectations. So that's another value that that we are getting from, from delivering the net zero carbon. Okay, thank you. Kelly, do you want to add something to this part of the debate? I'm going to just offer the, both you and Sadaf whether either of you would like to add something to the regulation, legislation. I just think I've kind of covered the key areas. I think obviously everybody's striving for the same goal in terms of that net zero ambition. Um, and I think it's, there's, there's complexities in that at the moment in time, and it's how we make it that it's, it's a kind of a streamlined process where it's clear to everybody about how and, and what's regulated and what other additional kind of incentives need to come through to maximise the kind of delivery of that net zero ambition. You know, we're looking at kind of, uh, there's a lot of focus around the operational carbon, but embodied carbon, again, is another area that's grown very, very fastly and it's trying to understand how that's going to be measured, how that's going to be tracked, so we're all measuring in the same way. We're not taking different approaches, and I think we've got to get to a point where there's a, there's a structured process for everybody to measure and, and deliver against, and I think we're not quite there yet. I think we've got to do a bit more work around that. Okay. 
Uh, Sanaf, I mean, I'm gonna, you're the lead-off person for the next question area, so did you, do you want to add anything to this part? Um, I actually think sorry. You're fine. Um, there are two ways that people would change their approach. One of them is financial and the other one is regulation. So if you go back three years time, we would see that IBG would have not done what they're doing. They're doing it because there is financial incentive or there is legislation to back it up. So if either one of those is not there, what we are saying about decarbonization won't happen in general. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, uh, just before I move the, the debate on to some of the other areas, uh, any, any questions or observations from the floor on this particular area? Um, have, you, have you still got the... Uh, hang on, the mic's coming again. <laughs> another observation really I, I picked up in Europe someone is actually selling a uh, I don't know whether um, a unit or something and they're talking about positive energy so that's another opportunity to create more energy in your villages and sell yes. it sell it yeah thank you um, okay I'm gonna move us on a little bit in the debate in terms of we're going to cover some of the other big themes that came out um, not being open to change was one of the key things, and, and I, I alluded to this earlier that some of you completed the survey that was quite detailed in terms of the questions. We also ran a poll on LinkedIn where the dynamics of that is it had to be shorter in any case. Um, but a point about not being open to change was a key point that came out. Uh, on the LinkedIn poll, somebody commented actually in the field below to say they thought it was a lack of uh, brave and committed leadership. Um, and, I, and I kind of felt that this was a point that in the longer survey kind of linked into the point about um, that, that, that in terms of obstacles, there was an inability, if you like, to convert strategy into action. Uh, and if you like, that's when the change starts to fade away. Um, a number of people also said, to be fair, that, that we do still, and we, unfortunately, we still live in, the, in this world, very uncertain environments and costs and all that kind of stuff as well. Um, so, um, not being open to change. Sadaf, if I may, in terms of leading with yourself here, you, and I know we talk a lot, you, you spend a lot of time working with uh, investment trusts and estates. Um, what, what sense do you get from them in terms of you know, are they brave? Are they open to change? Um, what's holding them back and how do we get them over that bump in the road, if you like? Um, I think there is three things. Firstly is what it is they're doing. What do we mean by decarbonization, for example? I think now everybody knows what that means. The why, um, because of what is happening with the utility bill, uh, the prices going up, the why is somehow defined, so they know why they have to do it. There are some incentives at the background. And then the third thing that I still feel like there are gaps in knowledge is the how. How do we really want to go and do the, uh, solve the problem? I have seen that with real estate investment trusts, um, asset manager, they really they are in the position now that they know they have to change their approach, but they don't know where to start. Um, and the journey, so they would say by 2030, this is the goal that we would want to have. But first thing they have to ask themselves, and what we are trying to help them is, where are you standing at the moment? 
um, do you really know what is, what is your data telling you? And is your data accurate enough? Um, and if they know where they are, it would be easy. And they have a business case. They know how much money they have. They know their budget. We would be able to ha hold their hand and walk them through the line to be able to choose the scenario that works for them. But what I feel for the moment is one of the challenges with these sorts of organizations, they really don't know where they're standing. They don't have internal knowledge, their technical knowledge, there is a big gap there. Um, and they would want somebody who they can trust to tell them the data they have, the information they have is accurate. And there are lots of companies out there uh, declaring they would be doing it, but they weren't able to help them in the past one year. So I'm going to mash a couple of areas together here, okay? So if any of the panellists you were thinking he's on script here, I'm going off script, okay? So let's... Uh, data is obviously another key issue. Um, Sadaf, I'm going to stay with you for a second, then Kelly, I'm going to come to yourself. Um, Sadaf, uh, try and explain to the audience, how, how do you help clients to set that benchmark and to get that data and to, if you like, to, to get organised? Um, I think... This is very relative. Firstly, you have to know what is the problem. Everybody is talking about data, data, data. Yeah, it's very interesting, data, product, but why? We have to understand, firstly, for each organization, the problem can be different than the other. We have to actually sit with them, understand what is the specific problem that the organization have, and for that, what sort of, what sort of data do we need to start this journey? Uh, the more data we have, the better, but that doesn't mean that if we have like 1,000 data points, we are in a good position. We first have to know what sort of problem we have and what sort of KPIs and data is needed for that specific problem. Then we know that we usually start, if it's, we are in the position to do real-time monitoring, we start to look at the process, we start to look at the trend. Uh, without knowing the pattern and trends, it's very... Mm, easy to say this is the solution that we have but firstly we need to know within a year two years what have you done and what is your capability the next level for us is so we say this is the data an analysis for the uh, baseline analysis the first point second point is what is your capability do you really think you can change this much what is your business case and how do we how would we be able to make a case for you? Coming up with a diverse range of scenarios to reach the goal they would want, and then testing it on, implica in, on um, um, implication matter. So we would just test each of the scenarios, making sure internally they have technical knowledge and they would be able to deliver it. That's what we do in the strategy for the first instance. Okay, thank you. And now, Kelly, uh, as we've discussed a couple of times, you, Kelly works for Wilmot Dixon, and we, we need to give them a plug here, because, Kelly, you've been a customer as well. Yeah. Tell the audience a bit about your experience as being a customer, and, and I think just paint a bit of a picture as to who that was for as well. Yeah, yeah. So um, I spent 21 years, well, 22 years in public sector working for local authority and NH trusts. Um, and going back to, to what we're talking about there in terms of data, that's the kind of starting point in terms of any kind of decarbonisation strategy. You've got to understand what's going on within your buildings and first and foremost, what buildings you have. 
um, experiences asset registers aren't necessarily the most up to date. They not have a, a full clear breakdown of what you actually own in, in terms of a, a clear understanding of that and having the data around that. But the data that you need to really start that journey around decarbonisation kind of focuses around your utility information, your display energy certificates, kind of yeah, your other BMS systems, what's going on with the organisation. And in a lot of cases, that data can be across a number of different departments. It can be not clearly kind of established in one place to go and get that information collectively. So there's a piece of work there before you even start looking at that decarbonisation strategies in terms of understanding where does the data sit and how accurate is the data. Um, and in a lot of cases, a good metering strategy is your first point in terms of really understanding what the data is telling you to then inform a real detailed decarbonisation plan. If your data is not accurate, then you're setting yourself on a path that you're going to be making decisions on incorrect information and not necessarily making the right choices. So I think in, in any kind of pathway towards net zero, you've got to take a step back and look at where does your data go, how is it managed and how accurate is it? And in the first instance, is it based on actuals or estimates? And if it's based on estimates, can you start putting in metering solutions to get that data more accurate? In some cases, can you get that half-hour data so you can see what's going on within your buildings? That's talking about the consumption aspect of it, but it's also important to understand the data that you hold on your buildings as well around asbestos management records, in terms of you know the kind of the floor areas and stuff like that. That all contributes to helping to develop a really informed decarbonisation strategy, and it also allows you to then aggregate that information to provide that kind of overall picture about what your estate's doing, what's the main drivers of your emissions, is it gas or electricity, and is it, you know, you could have, you know, 400 properties, but it could be 10 buildings that are making up the majority of them emissions that then allows you to really drive that focus into where you need to make them step changes. Okay, um, just before I kind of carry this on amongst the panel, again, I'm putting you on the spot out there, any any comments, observations? Um, thank you. We've got a couple here. The, the lady at the front, I don't know where, Andy. I'm just going to wake Andy up. Hello, Andy. Um, have we got a microphone? Craig's going to do the microphone. Well done, Craig. <laughs> Hiya. Um, I'm Katie Clements-Jackson from CODA. Um, I just wanted to... So, I've done quite a bit of POE analysis and, you know, talking about having mountains of data... I'm very familiar with that and I feel like at the moment, um, based on what I'm aware of, it's just sort of a manual process of getting that data and then trying to extract something useful from it and that is quite hard and I think um, it's not always something in a sort of traditional building contract that anyone, it's anyone's role to do in the first place so it sort of needs people like Sadaf and you know, who, who are dedicated to doing that but I just wonder whether... Um, you know, for, it sounds like you've been looking at this a lot, whether you're aware of any innovations in technology that make that data analysis process easier or, you know, wh whether you think there's perhaps some sort of opportunity to do that for, because I think a lot of people in this room are going to be interested in evaluating their data and getting kind of the same information about their annual carbon use, usage and emissions. So it would be good to hear from anyone if, yeah. if you're aware of any better ways of doing this. I think one of the, from, from my experience of being a customer and seeing it on the other side, 
was when I stepped into the department is parapets of paper-based invoices and losing the will to live and things of thinking, how can you get information from this and really get accuracy from that? So I think one of the key things, and a lot of people have moved away from that now, thankfully, um, in terms of having that kind of utility information electronic form, so an ADI that comes through on a monthly basis, you can get that drawn through and there's a lot of systems that you can then take that data and upload into so you've got a front-facing portal system that's telling you by your building kind of what you're consuming, what the makeup of that consumption is and what their emissions are. So, you know, you're reporting in terms of consumption emissions, but then you can sort of start seeing where there's reductions if you're putting strategies in place, you're putting solutions in place where their reductions are coming down. You can capture that as well, so you can actually see that. And, you know, a lot of local authorities, NHS trusts, um, you know, across other different sectors, they all have reporting mechanisms and regimes now, and that will continue to increase. You know, and I think you know, as we see time going close at the 2050, there'll be a lot more pressure about that reporting mechanism internally. So, if you haven't already got the skills and the resources internally, you've got an additional pressure building. So, you've got to start looking at that now. So, I would say start looking at kind of where your data is coming in, in what form it's coming in and then kind of getting it to an electronic form so then you can do stuff and upload it into systems that have been developed to, 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 rebuild, to be able to scrutinise that. Things like BMS systems, make sure that that's centralised so you can see what's going on within your systems. You get early alerts to let you know something's not working effectively so you can put mechanisms in to manage it. But then you've got them zonal controls as well, so when you're looking at an area that might not get utilised all, all, all week, to get, start getting them behaviour improvements through as well. So there's a lot of things there around data, but behaviour improvements, but information's the key thing that helps you to understand what you need to do. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, Michael, I, where's the microphone gone? Is it, okay, right, Michael's got a question. Yes, it was just, um, sorry, Michael Enstone from Hydrock. Uh, I, 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 one of the things that I think is also worth considering is about um, the language between investment and between implementation. So when investors talk about ESG, what do they mean? And what does that mean for us as designers and builders? What is that? And how do you translate between those two layers so that we can then get a very clear process that when you've got a fund that has got an ESG motive, that they know that going with that particular project or that particular design is achieving the goals of that fund? Okay, thank you. Um, does anybody want to pick up on that? Josh, Sonia, Mario, anybody pick up on the language issue? You're all looking blankly at me. You're not going to pick up on it, are you? <laughs> they all not pick up on that, did they? Right, I'm going to move on. Um, <laughs> let's stick roughly with the same theme, though. Um, Sonia and Mario, just either of you, I, I don't mind all both of you on this, just stick with the data for a minute, and then I'm going to move on to communication. Um, the data issue, and, and you touched on it, uh, Sonia, I think you touched on it a bit earlier on as well, in terms of products as well, the data that is available, there's an issue for insurers as well. How do we get over that issue as well? Well, I already mentioned that uh, yeah. Ligo in general, they are committed to deliver net zero carbon, so they actually uh, purchase some companies to have some control over the product. Um, and the supply chain, um, like you said, and then have more data as a result of that. So they purchased um, 
a company called Kenza. So all our heat exchange units in our villages are produced by Kenza. It does give us more control, um, certainty over the supply chain. Um, we are looking actually at purchasing another, well, we as a legal and general group are looking at purchasing a company that um, do PV panels. Because again, um, to get some control over that, um, um, not just financially, but in terms of of data available, of supply chain, of actually uh, tracing back the carbon um, emissions and footprint. Um, so there are a lot of initiatives um, that are happening, but it is still not enough. And actually, there is not many organisations that that have the funds to to suddenly purchase companies that could th could be used in their um, buildings and developments. So it is a very um, difficult yeah. topic. And um, I think the regulations that we're, everyone was mentioning is, is just the only way where you can control that. Well, I, I think when we speak about data, <coughs> um, you know, it's, it's a quite, quite a wide topic because the amount of data you might have on how you operate your, your buildings might be different to the data you have to back up the introduction of new materials or new technologies, right? Normally, in, in the innovation space, in the context of new uh, materials, like, you know, use of timber, use of new forms of concrete and steel, which, by the way, from our perspective, 96% of our emissions come from the materials we use. It doesn't come from the operation of our buildings as a developer, right? So for us, the materials we use, the scope three is key. And the data, perhaps, in that space is not as wide uh, and available as perhaps the data in the operational uh, part of our buildings. So, you know, from our perspective, being able to, to use limited data and articulate how we use that data to make decisions around investment of certain assets, how we use different materials, is a real challenge. For me, it's one of, of perhaps one of the biggest challenges from a development perspective, trying to bring some of these new technologies that we will have to introduce in order to meet our carbon reduction targets in a manner that you know, our insurers are comfortable with the risk, our investors uh, understand the value of bringing those technologies, perhaps you know, with the challenge of some of these technologies de delivering a more expensive assets which need to be counted as part of the whole commercial assessment. So being able to articulate that limited data that sits in that space of you know, materials and products is something that also needs to be accounted for. Because for us, like a developer uh, of like Lendlease, that 96% of our emissions come from materials will be very important in the future. Uh, the more data, the better. Currently, we struggle in how we articulate that limited data we have to you know, the value proposition for some of these innovations we're trying to introduce. Okay, thank you. Um, can I, in terms of the panel here as well, can I move us on to retrofit, uh, which I'm, I'm not necessarily sure was necessarily one of the things we originally talked about, but I'm, I'm just going to challenge you all to have a conversation about it and we'll, we'll see where we go. So retrofit, in terms of running the survey, and uh, you know, people have been registering for this event over about a sort of, I don't know, two to three week period. And so I've been watching what people have scored and retrofit rose up the list to become number two. 
When I arrived here yesterday, one of the first sessions on the, on the stage opposite us there was about retrofit, and it was very focused on homes. And if I was honest with you as an audience, uh, from a hydrop perspective, I would say we're probably more focused on commercial, uh, workplace, education, that kind of stuff. Or, and if it's homes, it's going to be larger estates, not, not you know, our own individual homes as such from a retrofit perspective. But there was a really interesting conversation over there about retrofit, about whether it needs to be rebranded in the sense of one of the challenges is people are just not interested. Um, they don't see it as an opportunity as a career. We haven't got enough resource, etc., etc., because it sounds really boring when actually it's absolutely critical. Um, and in the, the survey, you know, one of the challenges as well, and this is where I'm going to come back, and I think this is more of a commercial conversation for, for us as a panel, um, was that the, the challenge again is justifying the investments. As someone commented about, you know, people aren't going to, the challenge is that people aren't willing to invest in this uh, unless they're seeing the financial value, which is understandable. Uh, but again, this was coming, to be fair, this was coming back to the legislation point where they were saying, again, legislation is needed to drive this. Um, so retrofit was ended up being the second biggest obstacle. Um, how do, we ad how do we address that? And I am actually going to say, particularly from a Hydro perspective and possibly a Wilmot-Dixon perspective as well, let's stick slightly more in the, the commercial uh, space, if you like, where that could be education as well, for example, uh, hospitals, that sort of stuff, bigger estates. How do we address that? How do we help to um, justify uh, the different approaches, the cost, the return on investment, etc.? Um, who, who wants to lead on that in terms, Josh, do you want to kick us off in terms yeah. of your perspective and how we talk to clients about that? Okay, well, I think on the, the incentive piece and, and thinking about investment, I suppose there are yeah, two principal forms, uh, ways we, in, we look at investing in terms of um, carbon reduction. So we've got direct state subsidies, the likes of grants and, and various other programs, and then we've got effectively the asset owner in terms of the, the net savings, so the energy cost savings. There is then a gap around, well, well, how do we fill the rest in terms of making sure that it's, it's commercially viable? So from a you know, grant funding perspective, at the moment, there's been about $9 billion directed towards uh, sort of retrofit measures. And I think one of the, the challenges there at the moment is that often those grants are very technologically focused. They're focused on a heat pump or a district heating network. They don't necessarily aggregate all of those benefits again. Then... You know, in terms of the private finance, I think you know, what's interesting is we've got the pension funds, they're all ready to invest. They, you know, they've got trillions in, in capital that they want to deploy. But at the moment, there are limited mechanisms to actually do that in practical terms. So we've got green mortgages, there are green bonds, and, and I think only about two and a half billion to date has actually been directed towards energy efficiency. It was somewhat frustrating that the, you know, the energy um, strategy piece last year by government was almost completely silent around retrofit as well. So there, there's definitely a gap there. But I think What's probably you know really interesting piece, and almost coming back to that sort of concession energy piece arrangement that the, the gentleman um, mentioned there, I think that probably the opportunity around the financing piece is, is the blended finance piece, and, and thinking about uh, you know some of the work that uh, the Green Finance Institute are doing. I know they're talking later today, and the Bankers Without Boundaries in particular, and thinking about how do we monetize those indirect benefits. So we talked about you know, the social value piece, the air quality improvements. There's um, you know, a statistic that's often banded around around this, you know, for every 10 billion that's spent on, on retrofit, there's a net saving to the NHS of about 1.4 billion, just in terms of budget terms. So 
the, the problem, and, and going back to that data point, is we have no adequate way at the moment of, of capturing that. So if, if we can do that, and this is what um, the likes of Bankers Without Boundaries are, are looking at at the moment, that provides us potentially a route to a third form of, of finance. So trying to monetize those, those indirect benefits. And the likes of, of LNG are looking at this. We've got various programs underway at the moment. And actually, I know you said, Graham, that you know, our focus is principally non-domestic. But actually, the, probably the initial opportunity is going to be around social housing stock because yeah. you know, we have uh, ownership. There is um, you know, mechanism through local government in particular to deliver that at scale and again, create the investment then and confidence to take it forward. So I think that that's probably, you know, direction of travel the industry needs to go in is, is finding those mechanisms and using those energy savings then to direct that back towards a long-term, low-risk um, solution in terms of providing revenue uh, and confidence to the market. Okay, Kelly, observations from a Wilmot Dixon perspective? Similar to what we just said there with Josh, in terms of like retrofit is, is, a, is a key area of being able to decarbonise an estate. Um, and I think in terms of that, it's looking at that funding solution to be able to get there. And I think that's one of the big challenges that I've found kind of in the sectors that I've worked in. Um, you know, you've got some funding solutions that are out there that will support that retrofit and that investment. But that is very competitive. Um, it is basically fastest fingers first on the day. I'm not talking about public sector decarbonisation fund. You know, the public sector can go for that funding to do a lot of retrofit measures around heat decarbonisation, but it's much wider than that, what we need to do on a building in terms of retrofit. And I think the timelines to deliver as well is challenging. So we've got to look at a combined kind of mix of funding solutions, both private and public coming together and providing a model that works. Um, over timelines that allows that innovation to come through. If you're trying to deliver something in a short space of time, it restricts that innovation and that ability to drive change at a larger scale. Um, and I think it's, it's um, core benefits around ESG as well. That's fundamental when you're looking at something around decarbonisation. It has health benefits, it has mental health benefits, it has environmental biodiversity benefits, and it's looking at all of them additional core benefits that you have within an organisation with your employees being in a, in a building that is kind of a very good building to be in in terms of quality of air and, and, and kind of therefore it has a positive benefit on sickness records and stuff like that. So not just to focus in when you're looking at decarbonisation as something that you do into a building, looking at the overall collectives and the core benefits that that's driving forward around other delivery objectives that you have within your organisation. Okay, thank you. Um, Sadaf, I'm going to come to you in a second um, with a question almost more in terms of how people go about working out their strategy for retrofit. But just picking up on a, either to, to, to Kelly or Josh on one of the other areas I know we discussed, but, and, and Kelly, you've just mentioned it, fastest fingers first, um, and particularly for uh, public sector and anybody in our audience who's from the public sector today, um, any kind of quick top tips on how you get, and, and there's a phrase we've used in Hydrock about being fund ready, uh, on, on that, I, I don't mind either of you can, <laughs> Kelly. Uh, I, think, I think one of the key things that I would say from experience is being clear about what your strategy is. If you've got a clear strategy, then you know what you're going to be going for in terms of funding and where that funding aligns. So having them shovel-ready projects there, so when the funding window opens, you've already done a lot of your due diligence, you've already done a lot of your inv kind of you know invest investigations of solutions and benefits and stuff like that. So then having that template ready on the day 
to literally, you've got all the information, you've got all the backup information, you've got all the evidence information sitting behind that, to be able to cut and paste that and give yourself a good chance of getting that funding. I think it's also important to look at your internal capital budgets to see, have you got things on your capital budgets in, in a cycle kind of planned maintenance kind of process that will meet the criteria of PSDS, that you can therefore put that into your submission and free up that capital to go into other areas that don't meet the requirements of the different funding solutions that are out there. So you're using your both internal capital budget and your, your external funding opportunities in a really kind of effective way to drive your strategies forward. And, and Kelly, can I just lob one up for you here in terms of a conversation we had previously? Just a tiny bit about, I know remember from, I think our very first conversation actually, procurement. Yes. Do, you, do, do I need to say any more? Can you no. tell, tell the audience? So if people have, have, okay. have worked in this sector, then they'll, they'll actually, in, in, in public sector, that is a big challenge, that is a big barrier. And I think one of the key things is when you're developing your decarbonisation strategy, it's not down to a team, one person. It's got to be a collective. It's got to be the relevant people around the table together on that journey. So if you are looking for funding solutions and you know you've got your shovel-ready projects, you should be having them conversations with your procurement teams early on so they understand what your journey is, what your plans are. So when it gets to, in, in terms of PSDS, you have some really kind of tight timelines to deliver upon. You're not taking a lot of that programme delivery up in terms of the procurement process. So you've got to really get everybody on board with your journey, whether you're going for funding or not, so they all know the direction that you're going in. So at the times when funding does become available, you're fast to react and be able to drive that forward. Thank you. Right, we have 10 minutes to go, OK? Uh, so, uh, Sanaf, I'm going to ask you a question, uh, then I'm going to come back to the audience, and then we'll do a quick wrap-up, okay? Sanaf, uh, I'm putting you on the spot here a bit, but hey, this is good. Um, <laughs> carrying on the retrofit conversation, and I'm going to reflect on, I know, some of the work you're doing. There's a major trust you're working with, I know, in, in London at the moment. Let's now move that on to the, almost the practical steps around getting somebody ready to think about their retrofit strategy. What do they need to do? And, what are, and you know, what are some of the challenges? I know in London, that particular example, planning is a big challenge, but how do we help, how can we help organisations like that get ready to think about their strategy? Um, the first step that we actually take is to understand um, the basic information of your whole portfolio. Instead of just choosing a building to do retrofit, understand what is all of your portfolio telling you? Um, getting information, high level information from utility bill, um, geographical location, um, uh, from uh, uh, floor plan information. Get some information on what sort of uh, properties do you have? What is the archetypes do you own? And start from there. And then deciding what is your, um, why you want to change your approach. That's very important as well. So you know what sort of properties you have, but you also question yourself, why do I want to actually start this journey? Uh, what is my incentive? Do I want to actually um, invest, do I need some sort of climate investment fund to have, um, to be able to uh, start my journey in decarbonization? Uh, do I really feel like there is a problematic things for the tenants? We would define these 
in that stage as well. Then we would say, what is your top percent problematic properties? Um, and let's start and dig deeper in one or two of those. So let's do archetypal studies for those problematic um, uh, building and understand where you're standing on that matter. Coming up with simple, uh, shallow retrofit program, and then if you're happy, reaching to deep retrofit. So this is just a starting point. We would just iterate and we would go again through this process again. We would look at the whole portfolio, understanding what is the next challenging question you have, and then choosing the properties that is answering that specific challenge. And going through the same process, shallow retrofit, deep retrofit, and continuing the process. But uh, we can see that um, their clients that they have chosen two or three buildings because they feel like that's their landmark uh, buildings and they would want to just showcase this is the retrofit program we have. This is very good, but it's not reaching to the goal that you have. It's good to showcase you're doing a brilliant work, but we would suggest to them to start the other way around from strategy to the detail. That, that's what I would okay, say. Okay, thank you. Right, uh, Sonia and Mario, I'm going to come to you in a second with one kind of final question each on a couple of things we haven't covered. Um, just taking it back to the floor again, we've got just over five minutes or so. Any, there's a lady here who's ready to go and the microphone's coming from, oh no, oh hello, <coughs> oh, yes, no, that's good, good. And then there's a lady over here. Hi, just um, a quick one, um, Debbie Ward from the Rebuild site. Um, Talking about operational carbon, um, thinking around EPDs and materials passports, and that would really support the data and having consistency around that. Um, and also working with supply chain, looking at carbon insetting to work down your supply chain and help support um, having that carbon data. Okay, thank you. Uh, anybody want to take an observation on that in terms of material passports down the supply chain as well? Josh? I think some of the work we're doing with... Um, HS2 and, and a variety of other clients in particular on that piece. PAS 2080, which is a new standard around um, carbon verification in, in infrastructure and buildings, certainly points in that direction, and that's, that's definitely a standard that we're, we're seeking to push with a number of our clients. I think it's, it's absolutely a requirement, but there's still that challenge at the moment around it being a yeah, regulatory requirement. So I think it, it needs to happen to, to enable that you know, full value chain assessment to be undertaken. Okay. Um, Andy, sorry, there's a lady over here as well. And then we're going to go to the gentleman over there. Hi, thank you. Um, my question is going back to uh, topic number one about regulations, yep. but I think it also applies to, let's say, brief document, like brief, client brief documentations and, and sort of um, strategically. If you could characterize um, uh, regulations and, and briefing requirements in, in, in two possible ways. There, there's one prescriptive pathway where um, everything that you need to do is is itemized and, and set out for you and so every team needs to do XYZ, ABC um, versus the more sort of performance-based targets where you just need to hit uh, you know 30% less than a model building or something like that. Um, could you reflect on the pros and cons of those two different approaches, um, whether it be from a regulatory approach or from a, a briefing uh, approach? I can go if, if you want. Um, oh, yeah. So if I look at first the, the prescriptive approach to the brief, um, 
obviously by having something prescriptive, something that you are comfortable with, something that you have tested and trial with some of your stakeholders, whether it's the insurers, whether it's your investors, your designers, your own internal risk management process, the prescription gives you a little bit of a, of a reference so you understand the risks and perhaps becomes a little bit easier in, in trying to execute it purely from a, you know, trying to um, deliver something you're comfortable with, right? Obviously, there are some challenges with prescription and that limits the amount of innovation that you can bring into the mix uh, and, and perhaps, you know, you need to move, review that prescriptive approach to your brief constantly to ensure that you're moving with, you know, uh, the market and, and with the industry on the journey of whether decarbonizing or, you know, safety or any of the, the, the benefits you're trying to hit with that prescription. So. When you move into the performance approach, obviously it's a great way to set certain targets that align to our strategic uh, you know, requirements or positions we've taken. And, and as an example of, of how we're doing this at Lendlease, uh, we set ourselves to be absolute zero by 2040, right? not net zero, which means we are aiming not to upset uh, anything by 2040 and that means we need to work very closely with our supply chain and, and other stakeholders to ensure that they're coming on the journey with us um, and setting targets on 2025, 20, 2030 20, and 2040 is helping us providing a reference for you know bringing others on that journey with us so we have now projects that need to hit certain targets that perhaps are more ambitious than the rest of the industry, but that's helping incentivizing uh, innovation, thinking a, a little bit different, and then bringing projects and, and others along the journey of our targets. Sonia, do you, do you want to add to that at all? I think if you are prescriptive, you, you might be out of date and not synced with where technology is going really quickly, because actually, um, at the moment, technology is changing so quickly that um, that I think within a couple of months you could be behind the curve and um, therefore setting yourself some goals and standards and using any technology that is available on the market is much better solution. Um, Josh knows that we keep jumping from one solution to another and we are very responsive just because there is not enough data and information like we said. We go from air source heat pumps to ground source heat pumps back to air source heat pumps just because actually you can see that there, there is new information, new data showing that there is different efficiencies, different products available on the market. So when we set ourselves a goal in terms of performance, we can respond to the market much quicker. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, Andy, there's, there's, yes, uh, there's a question behind. Now, this, this, I might take this as the final question. Um, so do go ahead and we'll comment on it and then that's probably a wrap. Okay, uh, Matthew Margaret, Smart Technologies. We are a first mile data harvester for funds like Legal and General and a whole lot. We look at lots and lots of buildings and we see different energy intensity profiles. But to this point about regulation, I have never yet found an index for property in terms of operational efficiency based on the type of shed or retail park, whatever it is. And, and really it's directed at uh, Kelly and, and Sada, particularly on retrofit. Do you think it is time for an index to be created so that uh, an asset owner could recognize their profile relative to other 
operating buildings and therefore understand where they need to get to in terms of carbon emissions. So the question is, is it time for an index, a public index that you could price off in terms of carbon and efficiencies? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Good question. Kelly and Sadaf. Kelly, do you want to go first? Yeah, I completely agree. I think in terms of that, being able to measure against something and, and having that kind of benchmark and, and seeing where you're at, first of all, it allows you to measure in a consistent way, which I think is fundamental. And I think it also brings up, and it, whether it's a competition or whether it is, you do want to be seen as being at the bottom of the list. You want to be seen as being the driver at the top, especially from a, a kind of public perception point of view, from an ESG point of view, from social responsibility point of view. So I think where you've got something that really sets that benchmark and that people then can go against that, that where, that's where you'll start seeing the strategy really kind of developing. You'll start seeing the buying coming in from the top because they've got something there that they're going to be held accountable to. It's going to see that, you know, this kind of, this area is doing this much better than what you're doing and therefore that kind of drives that change naturally. So I think something like that's definitely needed in, and I would probably say sooner rather than later um, in terms of allowing for that progression to take place at pace. We know, you know, a lot of people have set targets for 2030, 2040, 2050 but some people don't even have the first stage of understanding what their position is, what their buildings are. So they need something that's going to bring that momentum up, and I think that will be kind of a key driver. Can I Sarah? add here as well? I think this is a very good point. Um, most of organ in the majority of large organizations now are um, obliging by science-based target, and they are um, uh, declaring where they are standing each year. Um, real estate organization has been behind, but they are catching up as well. Um, so you would see that in, um, for example, factories, you would be easily uh, able for their ESG framework or science-based target, it's easy for us to see where are the competitors and how they're doing. And maybe there is no legislation, but because these large organization, real estate investment trust, has to be part of the science-based target initiative, this will change. It may not happen for a smaller one, but for a large one, will happen from uh, following year. Thank you. Um, thank you for coming today. Uh, and uh, if, you, if you wouldn't mind, maybe give your appreciation to our panel. Um, thank you to our panel for all their thoughts and contribution as well. Um, thank you.